Welcome to What the Midwife Said, the podcast that's all about how babies and families are made. My name is Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, author of the best-selling memoir Hard Pushed, and I'm the midwife, in case you were wondering. In this series, I'm having honest conversations with some incredible guests, taking a deep dive headfirst into their experiences of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. That sheer <laughs> being in your mind and in your body and in a horrible place, and then once, one second it's just done. Yeah, and right before it's done, you really want to poo yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's so grim. It sounds like... Like, like a version of Wonder Woman lightning crotch. I quite like the idea of that. Perhaps that's my alter ego. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and Jamie's like, calm down. I'm like, no, but I'm ready. And my mummy said to me when I said no, she went, look, lol, if they are offering you this. It means I think you're going to live and it means I think you've got a future. Yeah, you think, how am I going to squeeze out a whole <laughs> other organism from that small place? The first time round, it was... I was saying to the midwife, hey, I feel like I need to push, I need to push, something's just, you know, and it was a lot of, no, don't push, you're going to reverse everything, stop pushing, stop, literally shouting at me. I've walked out onto stage in front of thousands of people, I've, you know, I've done all sorts of crazy stuff, and my thing before I do anything scary is, you've grown two humans in your body. Nothing scarier than that. We're exploring the way we see our bodies and our relationships, the choices we make as we build our families, and the highs and lows that those choices can bring. No judgment, no shame. Just what the midwife said. And I want you to join the conversation too. If you have any questions or you'd like to share your experiences, you can find me on social media at Leah Hazard on Instagram or at Hazard underscore Leah on Twitter. Just include the hashtag what the midwife said. Today's guest is journalist and presenter Rachel Burden. Rachel has been a familiar voice to many of us for years at Radio 5 Live, and recently she's become an increasingly familiar face on the famous red couch of BBC Breakfast. Rachel is also the mother of four children, and her youngest child was born by emergency caesarean section at 31 weeks after the sudden onset of preeclampsia. You know, I was just like, oh, okay. That's the baby. Now, that might partly be the, the drugs talking or just the weirdness of the situation or not feeling very well or just because it is very strange seeing this little thing come out that looks nothing like a baby. Or at least, you know, it does look like a baby. Of course it does. But, you know, it was so far removed from me. And then, of course, he very quickly put his little bag in the incubator and whipped away. I had a consultation with a breastfeeding consultant who looked at my boobs and looked at my nipples and she said, oh God, this, your nipple is just too big for this child's mouth. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God. I cannot imagine a busier woman than a mother who's also talking the nation through a major pandemic. And yet here she is. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Rachel Burden. Thank you so much for joining me on what will be, I guess, day six of homeschooling for you. Is that about right? Um, God, look, I literally have no idea. Um, what day is it? <laughs> Genuinely? I think today is Monday. Well, asking a night shift worker is the no, wrong no, 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 thing no. to do if day you want to know Tuesday, the day of the week. But exactly. I, I'm fairly certain it's Monday. No, today is Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> lost a day. So... <laughs> So oh, I think I've lost a day. day. It is Tuesday. 
Yeah, so I think we are on. You're right, you're right. We're on day six. It doesn't feel like day six, to be fair, um, but we are on day six of homeschooling. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I hate when uh, interviewers start off by asking women, how are you managing? How do you juggle it? But really, I think given the current situation, how are you managing is insane. Well, look, in all honesty, we've got it pretty easy in the sense of my husband and I can tag team. So I finish work. I'm home by 10. He usually sits down at his computer before then, but effectively he hands over to me at that point and disappears into another room where it's a bit more quiet and can get on with things. And then I take over from him. So, you know, one of us isn't working. And I know so many people, whether they're single parent families or people where both uh, parents are working from home, which is way, way, way more challenging. And my sympathy and respect goes out to them. So it's fine. The, the one thing I have found is, and you'll understand this, is when you work funny hours, so you're sort of basically knackered all the time, what you cannot do is sit down or stop because that's when you start to feel really tired. So I have done that thing where, yeah, I mean, I haven't gone insane and I haven't sort of timetabled Mandarin lessons for an hour a day, but I have sort of timetabled the day just so I know where I am hour to hour, even if it's just 10 o'clock CBBs, 11 o'clock, you know, Mm -hmm. with granny or whatever it is. And then, and then I don't have to think. So that, that is my strategy for, for getting through it. And it's been okay, but look, this is, as you say, day six, week two, there is a long way to go. And I may be weeping on the floor, you know, yes, to me in three weeks. Yeah, I I feel I was definitely weeping on the floor by the end of the first lockdown um, when school, such as it was, finished up for the year. I just thought, no, I've really had enough. Thank God I never have to do this again. And yet here we are. And how are you um, managing it for well not very well evidently I think today not the best I mean I'm lucky in a sense as well I am very lucky it could be much much worse and much much harder Um, my girls are 14 and 17 so the eldest is halfway through her first year at uni so she just returned over the weekend um, because she is on one of the courses that's allowed to go back at kind of normal time and my youngest is in third year so she's relatively independent and kind of self-motivated in getting on with things but the difficulty there is that she is now at the level with her coursework and things like chemistry and physics and actually mandarin which i can't help with at all i mean she's way beyond me already at this point so i just kind of sit there at the table with her and when she shows me a question i just say hmm that's interesting i don't know and we move on and i drink coffee and that's that's pretty much how it goes You've done very well as well to be in a country that lets students start university at the age of 17. My goodness, if I could boot mine out at that stage, I think I'd be, <laughs> I'd be celebrating. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're doing pretty well up here. I think uh, in many ways, I feel lucky to be up here at this time. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody's just doing the best they can everywhere. And give us a rundown, Rachel. So you have how many children of, of what ages just now, if you don't mind telling us? No, not at all. So I have four children um, and they are age 14. No, no, 15. It's <laughs> a good start, isn't it? 15, 13, 10, nearly 11. She's 11 next week. So they were all quite nicely spaced out. And then I have a four-year-old who's going to be five in February. Goodness. So you really are spanning the curricula in terms of homeschooling. Your brain has to kind of switch gears all the time, I would think. 
Yeah, but a bit like you, look, the older two now, they, you know, the rhythm of their school day is 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 a bit more structured than it was last time round, which is really good. So they have to be in front of the computer at a certain time each day. And, you know, they go to the local comprehensive up the road. This is just a school like many of them who've kind of got onto it now and um, and have managed to kind of put together a, a pretty good provision for them. So they are mostly occupied during the day. I just have to prod them occasionally, particularly the boy, the 13-year-old boy, and say, you know, have you done this? Have you done that? But I don't have to stand over him. And then the 10, 11-year-old, I mean, again, she's pretty good. She'll just get on with it. Um, so it's really only the four-year-old who needs the constant management but then what I find I'm doing is always managing a state of near warfare in the house anyway which is just standard so it's navigating my way through that and then feeding them and prodding them so I I do spend a lot of the day just going room to room prod feed uh, make peace in a war (laughs) sit down try and do a few phonics with the four-year-old and then sort of start the round all over again but it's fine you know we have got the privilege of living in a part of the world where there's loads of green space around us you know I've got financial security that is not to be underestimated in this day and age you know puts us in a hugely privileged position so you just get on with it just get on with it, you know, and, and and make the most of it. Yeah, that's true. There really is nothing else for it. I think the phrase which previously I despise, but now I say all the time is it is what it is, because we oh, really yeah. have so little control over events just now, don't we? Yeah, well, no, that's it. And you have to give yourself over to it. And I think you also have to limit your expectations, which is, again, something that we've heard lots of times over. But I think um, a lot of my I didn't really have lockdown goals last time, but you sort of half say them in your head. Things like my own personal sort of fitness, that's just out the window. There's just no chance to fit all that stuff in, but I'm not stressing about it. I'll do eight minutes Joe Wicks or whatever with them, and then that can be that for the day, tick it off, you know. So some of the kind of more aspirational stuff is just like totally trashed, and it's just get from the start of the day to the end of the day without blood being shed and I think that's a victory yeah absolutely that is a a little victory and in some ways a big one as well if you can do that over and over again for days and days and days on end um and this being the the podcast about sort of birth and starting families and um early parenthood to some extent I was really interested to talk to you about the youngest member of your family and you've spoken about him and his arrival into the world quite a lot um, and I think listeners to this podcast would be really interested to kind of go back over that with you if you're okay to do that and tell us a little bit going back in time, pre-COVID, pre-all of this, about how this little one arrived into the world. Yeah, of course. So this is Henry. So Henry is our number four, our baby, our most adored child, um, as I frequently tell the other children. Uh, not that they need to be told they know anyway. And um, actually <laughs> turning into a little rascal, which is no surprise, um, given where he comes in the family. But he, so look, I, uh, when I look back now at the decision making, and he, it wasn't an accident, you know, I, I kind of, I campaigned for a fourth child over a many years uh, with my husband who really only wanted two children and um, and looking back now I think I was probably quite reckless in some ways but I'd had three children and they'd all been you know really quite straightforward pregnancies I got pregnant quite quickly and easily I labored really sort of straightforwardly recovered really quickly fed them quite simply and easily you know it was all 
really straightforward. And I was a bit like, yeah, I've got this down. And I'll just slip another one out and it will barely be noticeable and we'll just crack on with our lives. Which was so arrogant. Um, and uh, I mean, in some ways, reckless. I don't know. We, we, we've ended up and, uh, you know, we're in a really fortunate position where everything's okay. But I think looking back now, it was quite a selfish pursuit. Having said that, he is the loveliest thing to have happened to our family. And while we joke about him being the favourite, he has, I think, shown the older kids. Um, I don't know, we kind of all unified around him when he arrived and, and he gives us a kind of common bond because there's no dynamic between him and the rest of the family. Everyone just loves him. You know, the rest of the kids and us, we all have our own dynamics. Now, um, that's probably deeply unhealthy and I'm so, sure psychologists will, you know, take that to um, apart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave that there. Therapy. Anyway, so, um, so having sort of, campaign to have Henry for some years and my poor husband eventually relented and I was 40 when I was pregnant and 41 so classified in that older mother age range um but I had no issues through the pregnancy particularly um I'd had a slight bleed in the early days but that turned out to be nothing and then as we moved through weeks 20 and they were scanning him and he was coming up small, but all my babies came up small in the scan. So I wasn't particularly worried about that. Um, but they brought me in for regular scans nonetheless. Um, and there was some issue with the placental flow in the scan that was picked up around, I don't know, week 26, let's say. Um, and so they said, come back in four weeks time. You know, baby seems to be fine, but just let's keep an eye on things. And so I went back in to Withenshaw Hospital where I was booked to have him for again what I thought was a regular checkup. I hadn't been feeling great admittedly and my ankles had really puffed up and my mum kept saying to me that doesn't normally happen to you something's not right and I said well I've spoken to the midwife and you get puffy ankles when you're pregnant it's all fairly straightforward it's fine. Anyway went in and um, she did the scan and she said still not quite happy with this placental flow blood flow issue thing but just go through to the nurse and uh, or the midwife and just have your other checks done and you know we'll we'll have a look at, look at it and come back to you so then I went through into the other room and they did the usual they took my blood pressure and took my wee and they went away and came back with a doctor and you have all the signs of preeclampsia we can't sort of really diagnose it as such but we you know there are a range of indicators and you're very high on all of them and we're going to need to keep you in and observe you and of course I've got a million things going on and kids at home and I'm like well okay you know all right I'll put my feet up for a couple of hours took me through to the um, antenatal ward and I was there and trussed up to various machines and then they kept popping in and clearly weren't very happy with the way things were going and anyway, long story short, um, towards the end of the afternoon, I called my cousin, who's a midwife, and said, you want to come over and, you know, if you're free. And I told her what was going on. And she said, I'm coming right now. And she looked at my she looked at my notes when she arrived. And I think she looked at the protein in my wee. She didn't tell me at the time. But she nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> and I was saying to her, oh, I've got this big outside broadcast to do on Monday and la 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 and she was like I don't think you're going to be going anywhere and it was only when the consultant came back that evening and said look um there's a chance we might need to get this baby out 
ASAP. And that that was when that was the only first time it, the seriousness of the situation really hit me. Because I was a bit like, oh, I'll put my feet up for a few days and go home and maybe it'll come a bit early and la 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 la. Anyway, um they then said if we can't take because I was at that stage 30 plus five or six, something like that. So they said we can't we can't take the baby here. If if we have to, if we decide that things are getting so serious, we have to um, get baby out. We can't care for baby here. So he or she will have to be transferred to Liverpool and you stay here. The alternative is to transfer you now to another hospital. And I said, well, what's the chance of that happening? And they said, maybe 10% because it's really hard to put a number on it. And I said to my husband, who by that time had come along and my mum had been dragged up to look after the kids back at home. Um, I said, one in 10 is high enough, I think, for us to take a decision here. So we decided to transfer. And the only place that had any facility for a a 30-weeker was Burnley at that stage, which seemed like, you know, another country. (laughs) So far away. That's not that. And how how far is Burnley actually from where you were just geography wise? Well, from Withenshaw, it's probably about like an hour in a car, an hour and a half in an ambulance and about an hour and 20 from where I lived. So I was put in one of those creaky old ambulances um, at about midnight and they transferred me to, to Burnley and I was taken there. And I have to say, I mean, I'm sure any hospital I went to would give me excellent care, but I couldn't have been anywhere better in the world. They were amazing there. And they monitored me over that Friday night and then through the Saturday. And then John Ash, who was my consultant there, said to me, I just think things are not improving at all. And it we're gonna have to we're gonna have to, you know, go for it and take baby out. Um So that was a Saturday evening. And I remember ringing Luke and saying, they're going to go for it and you're going to have to come up. And he was like, what, really, already? (laughs) I said, yeah, get your ass (laughs) over here. So he dashed up to the hospital to stay overnight on the Saturday because we weren't sure how early they'd go for it on the Sunday morning. That must have been quite a fraught night, Rachel. I mean, apart from being surprised, how were you feeling when the consultant said, yeah, it's going to be tomorrow? Well, you know what? I wasn't well which I don't think I'd t- fully taken on board. And I hadn't been well for some time. And I, I'd felt like I'd got the flu or something like that. And in fact, I had the doctor had ordered me to take some time off work, which I never did about three or four weeks prior to this. So clearly my system wasn't coping very well with something. And I think I was just in a bit of a daze. And by the time consultants start saying things like, you know, your baby's got to come out, you kind of go with it. And you sort of float through. Mm. And I think it's almost more worrying for people who are at home and aren't there and don't have any control or agency. But I just kind of sat there and was a bit like, well, yeah, if you're telling me that's what needs to happen, that's fine. I trust you. The the one choice they gave me was whether I wanted to try try and labour naturally. But of course, it wasn't going to be a natural labour per se, because I was going to be heavily trussed up and monitored and you know all kinds of interventions and then there was going to be quite a high chance that they might have to intervene with an emergency c-section anyway and I said you know normally I would yeah I'm not I'm not a kind of fanatic natural birther but that would always be my birth of choice 
Um, but I just said, nah, do you know what? Cut me, cut me open, get baby out. Let's just crack on with it. And so the Sunday morning, that's what happened. And yeah, taken into, into theatre, amazing team there. I mean, that was surreal, that whole experience, because I'd never been in an operating theatre before. I'd never seen so many people, medics around me. Um, and of course, when Henry came out and Luke was um, kind of watching proceedings and I was comp- fairly oblivious up the other end. And when Henry came out and they showed him to me very quickly and he genuinely looked like a little purple rat and I've never felt more disassociated with um, a baby in my life you know I was just like oh okay that's the baby now that might partly be the, Mm. the drugs talking or just the weirdness of the situation or not feeling very well or just because it is very strange seeing this little thing come out that looks nothing like a baby or at least you know it does look like a baby, of course it does, but you know, it was so far removed from me. And then, of course, he very quickly put his little bag in the incubator and wh- whipped away. Um, well, then they sought you out. And yeah, I read an article about this, Rachel. You were you were talking about his birth, and you said he was scooped out of you. He was three pounds and put into a plastic bag. And for for people who are sort of in the business, you'll know that you know really premature babies are put into these sort of specialised plastic bags sometimes just to conserve their body heat. But I can imagine for somebody who'd never been in operating theatre, never seen a preterm baby, never imagined the baby be put into a bag, um, it must have seemed a bit all like a strange dream, really, compared especially to your other experiences. That's exactly what it was, exactly that. And you do feel, it's it's a slightly out-of-body experience. You do feel detached from it and that you're observing it happening to you. Which is a strange one. And that's, I don't, it's not necessarily like that for every preterm baby. Certainly that isn't the case for, you know, standard C-sections that happen, which, you know, are much more kind of um, involved processes for the parents. And, you know, after the section, you know, skin to skin with baby and all of that and you bond. But but in, in this particular case with tiny babies, it's obviously very different. So, so yeah, so it was, you know, it was then sort of recovery and then, it was just trying to kind of feel normal again. And then I can't think, I think I lost that Sunday. And I think the Monday then I was taken down. So he he was born early Sunday. And then I was taken down at some stage on Monday for the first time to see him. And that was a weird experience as well. Presumably you, you must have, you know, your body's been through so much having been through a section and having had preeclampsia. And so maybe not working optimally emotions all over the place so what was it like then can you remember that moment when you actually went up to the nursery and were able to see him uh, presumably with lots of kind of wires and things going on around him really strange and the whole environment of NICU unit which I actually grew to kind of strangely love but found very alien at first um, where you go in and it's very quiet and hushed except for the constant beeps of the monitors and the machines and then they take you over and you see this little child. And I didn't really recognise him as my child straight away. I mean, I obviously knew he was mine, but I didn't go, oh, there's my Henry. I can see Luke in him straight away. <laughs> you know, he looked really <laughs> brawny and completely bald with a few kind of tufty bits of hair. And, you know, these kind of big eyes and just lying there on his side. And it was just so strange. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't cry or anything. I wasn't really upset about it. I was just like, okay, you know, this is what we do. And and even before I'd gone down there, 
the midwives, uh, I mean, one in particular who was quite kind of um, straight talking, had just said to me, get pumping. <laughs> That's your only job now. <laughs> and at this stage, I still had a catheter in, I think, almost. I was just, you know, I felt dreadful. And the last thing I wanted to do was start bloody pumping for milk. But anyway, it soon became clear that that, you know, that was the major role for me over the next few days and weeks indeed. And um, and it's amazing how quickly you adapt to that environment of a NICU and suddenly that becomes normal. So while it was strange and weird and alien, I very quickly fell into a pattern there and gradually got to know the routines and got involved in the baby's cares and was obviously pumping all the time. So there was a bit of structure to my day and got to hold him and have skin to skin with him and got to know him. And that process took place, you know, over a few days really before I began to feel any kind of proper bond with Henry. So, and then, and this is the sort of slightly weird thing, and I'm very tentative about saying this because I know for so many people having a baby in special care can be really stressful um but because he was generally in a good state and they said to me he's just a feeder and a grower that's all that's required here just give it time you know we see them much tinier we see them much more poorly so don't stress just you know it's time and it's patience that's what you need which I didn't have barrel loads of but anyway so then I really began to relax and sort of thrive in the atmosphere of the NICU and the maternity unit there because I don't think in my life probably not since I was a child I had ever been so well looked after and I didn't have any other children to think about I didn't have anything in the house to think about I didn't have work to think about all I had to think about was me and this little baby and feeding myself up getting rested recovering and pumping out milk every day and I was, you know, I remember Luke coming in and saying to me, you look really well. (laughs) It's like, well, (laughs) you know, life is much simpler here. I mean, as you said, for for a lot of women in the NICU, it's a really strange environment. It's really stressful and challenging. But do you think there was a way in a sense in which for you, somebody who's normally very busy, very highly functioning, very organized and um, kind of multitasking all the time, for you, this quite intensive um, institutional environment ironically allowed you to strip all of that away and actually just focus on this kind of primal bond between yourself and Henry that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do in another environment. A hundred percent. That's exactly it. I couldn't have put it better, really. And I, you know, I, I regard it as um, a very special time. And I, I as I say, I don't want to be flippant about it because I I know those environments can be sort of desperately challenging. But I I I just think um, the whole atmosphere around the care for the babies there, the precision of it. I suppose I really needed that and sort of thrived in it. It was more challenging, as I think a lot of parents find and women find removing myself from that atmosphere and sort of coping with the chaos and the lack of regularity at home than it was being in the hospital Mm -hmm. I spent 10 days there I'd have stayed another two months to be honest if they'd let me (laughs) 
Yeah, because in a sense, I mean, when you're in that environment and you're told, right, you are now a milk machine, this is your role in getting your son better and moving on with things, they're almost, I guess, in some cases can be a lightness and a freedom in stripping everything away and just doing that. Whereas perhaps in another scenario, so many women struggling with feeding in the early days find it devastating to be told you are just a milk machine now this is all you are this is all you do so it's actually it's it's really fascinating to hear that for you that was almost a a sort of liberating thing to just solely be able to do that for Henry and know that you were doing good definitely yeah definitely and you know I was really grateful to uh, everyone there for the support I got and they are such experts in their fields and they know what they're doing so you felt total trust in them in terms of Henry's health and care I knew he wasn't in better hands I knew you know whatever happened this was the best care he could get so good or ill he was well looked after so I you you have to relinquish control and just do the bit you can do which was as you say kind of pumping and then gradually getting more involved in in his day-to-day but I remember the children coming to see him for Mm. the first time and finding it a very strange experience you know that they were so looking forward to having this kind of bouncing baby brother or sister and it was so far removed from that and my son at the time I think just didn't like it at all I think the whole environment was quite stressful and Henry looked weird and like an alien and uh, you know it was hard it was hard and that was fine you know obviously very quickly he grows and develops and they get over that but um but for me it very quickly became a, a normality and I think some of the challenges we then moved to um Macclesfield Hospital which was um, thankfully much closer to home and I did want to be back with the rest of the family by that stage and um, the the unit and Mac couldn't have been more different in some ways because they took slightly older babies there much much less high tech um, much more um, what's the way to describe it a little bit kind of softer around the edges I suppose but again amazing beautiful care and even when I was there, you're still quite heavily regulated by timings and feedings and weigh-ins and charts and numbers and everything. And I think the real challenge comes when you have to extract yourself from that environment ultimately and, and bring baby home. And um, and, and that, that becomes, you know, the slightly more difficult bit and you have to get your head around managing all of that. Did you find that you kind of came back down to earth with a bump a bit when you came home? Obviously, I would imagine lovely to be around your family and your other children. But then I would imagine, you know, in my own life in that scenario, all my other responsibilities would come kind of flooding back and the other bits of me would then sort of encroach on on what I'd been doing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I again, very lucky, brilliant friends and neighbours. And then my mum was up and around. It feels like a different world now, doesn't it? To think of grandparents being able to come into your house and give you loads of support. But we had all that. Um, so that that was fine. I think I think for me, the sort of the bumpy bit was trying to get him to feed properly, and and of course, inevitably, I wanted to bring him home fully breastfed, and um, and he wasn't he wasn't feeding well, so he wasn't putting on weight, and he was having to be tube fed, and then he was getting bigger, and you know, we were getting to the stage where we were having conversations where if I'd shoved a bottle in his mouth much sooner, we'd have had him home much sooner, but I didn't want to do that. Until eventually they said to me, listen, this child will be in short trousers by the time he gets out of here. So 
I did ultimately finally crack. I had a I had a consultation with a breastfeeding consultant who looked at my boobs and looked at my nipples and she said, oh God, this your nipple is just too big for this child's mouth. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, you know, I've tried so hard, but in the end it's flipping physiology that's holding me back. And she's just said, it's just really, you know, for a baby that small, it's, you know, it's challenging. So don't be hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so in the end, um, that that was the process that I inevitably beat myself up over. But, you know, in the end, we came back and he was a bit on me and he was a bit on bottle, which is so fine. I mean, my goodness, you know, I look back mm-hmm. and I think, oh, why did you, you know, put yourself through under such pressure as so many women do? Um, and he came home pretty close to his term date. I think he was 39 weeks when he came home. So we did really well. We were sort of pretty much bang on target. And um, and then by the time he was a year old, he wasn't walking when he was a year old, but he wasn't that far off. He was pretty much, you know, like what you might call a normal year old baby. Amazing. What a journey you both went through and it's fantastic to hear you kind of look back at it and be so sanguine about all the challenges that you faced and and fantastic to hear that it, it it's fine and he's thriving that's wonderful oh yeah no no it's it's strange looking back on it now because he's you know he, he's so like everyone said to me I met so many people who'd say oh my baby was born at 28 weeks and he's six foot four and and you know logically you know all those things but when you're looking after a tiny baby um, you just want them to grow. That's all you care about. Just put on weight, just put on weight, just put on weight. That's all you can think of. And you're kind of bound by these constant weigh-ins and measuring how much milk they're getting and how much time they're sitting on the food. And I think in the end, probably the best advice I had was to stop measuring everything, you know, stop timing everything, put away the little book of notes. Because you know what it's like when you're in NICU, everything is regimented and recorded. And there had to come a point at which you say, right, just put that all away. This child is going to be fine. He will grow at his own pace. He's getting enough food. You know, he will sleep eventually. All those things will happen. Um, all the wise stuff that you don't take on board when you're in the thick of it with a with a newborn and with a premie. But yeah, you know, and I am, like I say, I can't stress enough. I am sort of hugely grateful um, that things were really straightforward for me. And, and for many people, even when they leave NICU, you know the additional needs and challenges go go on and continue from there and they may be parents with other children to care for as well so I do not underestimate the experiences of other parents who've had premie babies and I acknowledge that really ours you know we got off lightly. And I think you know it's it's great to recognize that and flag it up and especially now looking at your experience through the lens of covid times which we do with everything nowadays um i think the experience of being in the nicu must be so different for many mums and dads now when of course we have different visiting restrictions to um, ensure the health and safety of uh, staff and babies and families and i think that really pressurised, um, quite intensive environment is even more alien and pressurised now. And what would you say to parents who are going through that experience now with all the kind of added layers of stress of, of COVID? I cannot imagine what it would be like. I can't imagine. But I suppose I would say, you know, if you're a NICU now listening to this, don't feel guilty about cocooning yourself and try and make the most of that moment. 
because when you leave it, you know, life is very different. So, so as frustrating as it is to be in hospital and particularly if baby's poorly, you know, in a way, just go with it, just go with it. And as much as you can, not enjoy it, but, you know, use the opportunity to, to look after yourself while you've got that support around you. And then for people coming home and, and trying to manage on their own, oh, I don't know how you do it with babies and, and toddlers, say, to look after as well. But again, you look back and a year goes and you're like, wow, how did how did that happen? And those moments, those dark, dark moments in the middle of the night where you're weeping from lack of sleep and you can't get babies to feed properly, whether it's boob or bottle, and you're just at your wit's end and you don't know how you're going to get through the next day and everything seems dreadful. You know, it's that thing about take a deep breath and, it, you know, you will get through it. You will, you will. And imperceptibly over time, things will get a little bit easier. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, buckle up and go with it and let let time kind of take its course. But And accept help. You know, if someone says, I'll bring you around a cake or a pot of yes. soup, say, yes, please, do it. Yes. Oh, God, I'd love somebody to bring me cake and a pot of soup. <laughs> bring back those days. I think that's great advice, definitely, to be kind to ourselves and to accept help when it's offered. Um wonderful words for anybody who's going through a dark time whether with a new baby or or otherwise just now and I think that brings us really nicely actually to the question that I like to finish on with this podcast obviously it's called what the midwife said and something I love to ask each guest is whether they can recall something that a midwife said to them through their journey or it can be another practitioner a doctor or um, auxiliary or, or anybody on your journey if you can recall something that somebody said to you and it really stayed with you after the fact um, could be good or bad ideally good but can you think of something maybe a word of comfort or wisdom that you had during that time with Henry that really stuck in your mind the one thing that sticks in my head and I spoke to um She's actually, she's a community midwife who's a really good friend of my cousin. I got so much brilliant advice, but um, but I spoke to her about when I was struggling with breastfeeding and she just said, just sit down, relax, put your notebook away that I was recording his feeding times in and just eat two pieces of chocolate every time you feed. <laughs> and it was just a bit like, take yourself away, you know, make it a pleasurable experience, just you know, like you say, go easy on yourself and be kind to yourself. And that I do remember. I choose to remember the chocolate, basically. That's what sticks with me. Oh, for sure. Oh, a- any particular brand or varietal that you would recommend? I mean, does oh, it God, have to be like a Yorkie good. or I mean, a Crunchy don't, Bar? Don't get, don't get. Oh, yeah. This, you know, just let's stay with something easily accessible. <laughs> Yeah, other other brands obviously are available, but hey, we're not on the BBC, so we can say what we like. That that sounds that sounds pretty good and excellent advice. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of What the Midwife Said, hosted by me, Leah Hazard, and produced by Steve Bland of Bambi Media. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rachel Burden as much as I did. Please get in touch if you have anything to say about our conversation. Please do remember to review and subscribe to the podcast so that other listeners can find us. Share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag WhatTheMidwifeSaid and tune in next week.